Welcome to the Democracy Dispatch podcast. I'm Justin Marsh, Political Outreach Director at Vermont Conservation Voters. This is your weekly scoop on legislative action as we work to push forward environmental policies for Vermont. Each Monday, we will take a look back at the week prior, preview the week ahead, and speak with legislators and advocates on topics affecting our air, water, open space, and quality of life. On today's show, I will be joined by Lauren Hurl, Executive Director of Vermont Conservation Voters, for the Session Shakedown segment. Lauren then catches up with Representative Larry Sakowitz for our deep dive conversation about the 30 by 30 Land Conservation Bill. Later, I'll speak with three legislators in their 20s to get their perspective on campaigning, shaping policy, and navigating the political landscape as young people. But first, if you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and give us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on social media as well. On Twitter, we are at VoteGreenVT, Instagram at VT Conservation Voters, and find us on Facebook as well. You can subscribe to our emails, see our legislative scorecard, and learn more about our work and policies by visiting vermontconservationvoters.org. Have an idea for a story or want to provide feedback? Email me at jmarsh at vermontconservationvoters.org. Now I am joined by Lauren Hurl, Executive Director of Vermont Conservation Voters, for our Session Shakedown segment, where we recap the week prior and look to this coming week of the session. Last week in the State House, Vermont Conservation Voters and Vermont Natural Resources Council were quite busy offering testimony on a number of committees. I provided my very first testimony ever on ranked choice voting in the Senate Committee on Government Operations. I talked with some lawmakers afterwards who were kind of surprised that an environmental organization like ourselves would be so interested in something seemingly not related to the environment, but We believe a healthy environment relies on a healthy democracy, and plus we have vote right in our name. Uh, Lauren, what else did uh, we offer testimony on last week? Yeah, there there was a lot going on. So there was testimony going on in the Senate Economic Development Committee looking at the housing equity bill and a whole host of different policy ideas that will encourage um, smart growth housing. So can we make it easier to develop in the places where we want it and get more accessible and affordable housing um, in place? And also in the House Environment and Energy Committee, uh, there was conversation about biodiversity and in particular, the 30 by 30 bill. So looking at conserving 30% of Vermont lands by 2030. And uh, in a few minutes, you can hear more about that in a conversation that I had with Representative Larry Satkowitz. Um, But yeah, a lot going on and on a whole range of topics, which is really exciting. Yeah. And over on our sibling publication, the video series that we call Climate Dispatch, you and Joanna Miller spoke with longtime climate champion, Representative Molly Burke of Brattleboro. Representative Burke sits on the House Transportation Committee and is sponsoring alongside 35 of her fellow legislators, H101, which is the Transportation Affordability Act. This bill was proactively crafted by legislators as a framework for what they see as the most pressing transportation investments needed in the annual transportation bill, Vermont's large overarching policy for state transportation funding. What were some of the major buckets of funding that um, H101 includes? 
It's really looking at a suite of approaches for cleaner transportation. And so on the one hand, you've got um, investments tied to how are we electrifying our cars and getting off of polluting fossil fuels. Uh, So the infrastructure and the electric vehicle incentives um, and so on tied to that. But importantly, it's also looking at things like how we're funding our um, our infrastructure so that we're having roads that are more accommodating for bikers and pedestrians and supporting our electric bike program and, you know, really looking more broadly at transit and micro transit, which is essentially like Uber for your uh, your village where you can have, you know, instead of a fixed bus route, you can have, um, you know, call up on an app or make a phone call and get a more kind of home to to community uh, ride. So there's a whole bunch of ideas. And in the Climate Dispatch, Representative Burke really goes through and it it takes her a long time to even describe all of the investments, which I think was just a testament to kind of the broad approach we need to addressing transportation in our rural and cold state. And we need a whole bunch of solutions to to make it work for everyone um, and all our different types of communities. Yeah, it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all um, solution for sure. Um, you can watch all of our Climate Dispatch videos over on our website. Uh, Lauren, what's the latest on the Affordable Heat Act? That legislation has been continuing to get a deep dive in the Senate Natural Resources and Energy Committee. They heard from both supporters of the bill. Um, they heard from the fossil fuel industry. Uh, so really looking at all sides of how this legislation um, could impact the heating sector. And, um, you know, my understanding is they'll continue plugging away at it this week. And we're continuing to watch and keeping an eye on, you know, is this bill going to be really driving down climate pollution in our heating sector? Are the solutions that are going to be Uh, created from this bill? Are they going to be equitable and really help all Vermonters, um, including lower and middle income Vermonters, make the transition to clean heating technologies? So, you know, making sure it's going to foster more access to weatherization and heat pumps and and other things that are going to help Vermonters have, you know, cleaner heating and also over the longer term, more affordable heating. So we'll be keeping a close eye on how that conversation continues in that committee. Sounds good. And last Wednesday, you were able to catch up with Representative Larry Sackowitz of Randolph uh, in the Cedar Creek room at the State House to chat about 30 by 30. Let's uh, go to that next. Hello, I am delighted to be joined today by Representative Larry Satkowitz, um, who has been a member of what was formerly the Natural Resources Committee and now the Environment and Energy Committee in the House. And um, Representative Satkowitz has had the opportunity to work on one of VCV's priority bills, the 30 by 30 bill. Can you just tell us a little bit about what this bill does and why it's important? Sure. Um, This bill basically will instruct the agency of natural resources to help us figure out how to get to this goal of preserving um, 30% of our natural lands by 2030 and 50% by 2050. Great. So there's like a whole national and international movement around the half earth and a UN uh, 
biodiversity initiative um, setting this target of 30% land conservation by 2030. So this is kind of Vermont playing its role in that kind of international movement. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, when this bill first came up and what happened last year? Yeah, so we took this bill up last year. Um, it got a strong vote in committee and it got a very strong vote on the House floor, it was vetoed by the governor, and that was where it ended. And so bringing it back this year and hoping to get it all the way through the process. Excellent. Not excellent it was vetoed, but glad it's back and being taken up. And, um, and your committee, um, House Environment and Energy, is going to be working hard on, on the bill um, and already taking testimony. Um, are there changes that you expect to see or waiting to hear how the testimony goes? Yeah, I expect that the bill will be very similar to what we had last year, but um, I don't know what kind of changes might be in store. Um, you know, anytime a bill comes back, it's, it's an opportunity to make it better. So we'll see what we can do with it. The, committee it has a very different group of people on it than it did last year right. so there'll be some new voices with new perspectives and it's hard to say how that will unfold excellent and my understanding is um one of the main concerns that the governor had used to veto it was capacity at the agency of natural resources to do the planning necessary to figure out how do we really get to our 30 percent conservation goal um, but the Vermont Housing and Conservation Board has started doing some work around this process. Um, and so that might be an opportunity to help kind of share the load. So that concern that had been raised last year, there might be opportunity to keep things moving um, despite potential capacity constraints at the Agency of Natural Resources. So yeah, I, would, I would hope so. And, but in any event, this, this is really important work that we need to do. Um, Biodiversity is crashing worldwide, um, and Vermont is no exception to that. Um, and we, if we, we need to make sure that we put in the capacity to, to do this important work. Um, the, the biodiversity has been a problem for a very long time. It's getting much worse, and um, this, is, this is nature. This is the world that we live in. We need to do what we can to, to preserve the environment that surrounds us. And, uh, you know, Vermont also is in a particularly important location regionally as well. Um, Vermont, to the north, we have um, wild areas in Canada. To the west, we have the Adirondacks and the protected lands there. Um, and then there's the national forests um, to the, in the southern Vermont, but also in um, New Hampshire and Maine. And so Vermont is really a, a big connector piece. And so the more we can do to keep as much of the natural ecosystems going here, um, it really is going to have regional um, effects, um, much bigger than just our, our little corner of the world. Really helpful context. Um, absolutely. Well, we are really excited to work on this uh, alongside your committee. Um, this, you know, also was a priority identified in the state's climate action plan, you know, preserving our biodiversity and our climate mitigation, our forests that sequester carbon and provide habitat for our wildlife and um, also resilience and um, making sure that we've got a landscape, you know, with the changes that we already know are coming with climate change, you know, our 
our natural resources are going to be more important than ever. So really excited you all are taking this up. Thank you for taking the time to join me and share why this bill matters and um, what is happening with it. And I'm sure we'll be back with you later in the session to hear how it's going. Sounds great. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Take care. I'm joined now by three legislators who are in their 20s for a conversation about their experiences in the State House and while campaigning. Representative Lucy Boyden of Cambridge is the youngest current Vermont legislator in office at 22 years old. Senator Rebecca White of Windsor County was elected as state representative at age 24. After, after two terms in the House, she was elected into the Senate in 2022, making her the youngest ever Vermont state senator. Representative Jay Hooper of Randolph is serving his fourth term, and he's still in his 20s. He was elected right before his 23rd birthday. <laughs> Not with us today, but also currently serving in the House while in their 20s are Esme Cole of Hereford, Dane Whitman of Bennington, and Taylor Small of Winooski. Vermont's had some notable young legislators. Among them are former Governor Jim Douglas, who served as a rep starting at age 21 back in the 70s. Current state senators Keisha Rahm Hinsdale and Richie Westman both were elected to the House's House at ages 22 and 23, respectively. But despite these figures and facts, the reality is that Vermont's legislative body is still quite a bit older than the average age of Vermonters, which is 43. Although the data available is a bit outdated at this point, it's from 2017, even then the average age of our state senators was 65 and House Rep 63. These ages are older than they were in 2012 by about two years each. And the trend data from 1966 to 2006 shows that the average age used to be around 55. Well, it seems like our state house is aging, just like, the Vermont, just like Vermont's population. I would say the legislative body feels fresher and more youthful than ever. And that's where I'm led for my first question, Representative Hooper. Since you've served the longest of the three of you, True. I'm curious how you feel about this. And do you think the pandemic had a role? No, I don't have any reason to think that. Uh, but I think it's a great thing because this place needs so badly to become more interesting to young people and people who are not young because most people don't care about government. Most people don't trust government. And all of a sudden, everybody's got an opinion on everything. You know, So we need young people to show that we are going to take responsibility for the for our futures and other and the futures of of institutions and and the people that they serve uh, because it's it's extremely important so thank you justin for having us and yes i am serving in my fourth term which makes me the most uh, veteran member of the three of us just gonna sit oh and of course lucy it's cool because we're in the 22 club right as was ben jickling the one who got elected with me um, in 2016, and so, um, sorry, Becca, you're you were late to the party, but welcome. Thank you. <laughs> so, do you, does it feel fresher and younger though? And of the of the, this is now your fourth term. So, is it does it feel more? Yes, it does okay. feel more fresh. Um, the reason is because I think that we have a lot, a lot more eager members. The new members are are very thoughtful people. And in some cases, there were members who weren't as thoughtful as they could be replaced because of that, that variable. <laughs> Senator White, you're the youngest state senator in Vermont history. 
Um, does it feel different in the Senate? I know you're only a month into your new role, but I'm curious your perspective having spent time in both chambers. Well, one correction, I am not the youngest state senator ever. I'm the youngest woman state senator ever. I did not know that information until Vince Aluzzi pulled me aside to ask me what my birthday was because he was the youngest state senator, we believe, at 27. And I was just a few short months older than that. So I've been to the finish line by mere months on the age piece. Um, but the difference between being in the House and the Senate and being the age that I am, I, as, as uh, Jay pointed out, I did come in with a class of, of other young folks, including um, Lucy's predecessor, Lucy Rogers, in the House, along with Felicia Leffler. So I did have a nice cohort of younger members that I got to serve with, which is extremely helpful for just your own sense of sanity in the building, because you're expected to have a lot more knowledge on things that you just are not going to have knowledge on because you've not lived that experience yet. Um, so you either have to very quickly adjust or you have to feel that it's okay to not know and being okay with not knowing comes from having friends who will build you up. So going into the Senate, I'm also lucky again where I've got another great cohort of younger folks who are joining, including no one in their 20s besides me, but Senator um, Nader Hashim, Tiny Behoski, they, and um, just the fact that we have so many new members in the Senate. It is a really great group of people, and we do have a good social cohesion with um, the mix of, of generations. And just we have to assume that all the young people who came after me and Ben Jickling were inspired by the two of us. I, 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 I don't want to. I, I don't want to give you the credit, but I will. But I will. <laughs> I <don't laughs> On the record, it was Jane from. I'm from a district uh, that has been pretty open to electing young leaders. As I mentioned before, Senator Westman of Cambridge was elected when he was 23. I ran for House, although unsuccessfully, when I was 23. In 2018, Lucy Rogers was elected at 23. And then last fall, Representative Boyden, you were elected at 22. Um, and actually, Senator White and Representative Hooper, your district too, have a reputation for believing in young leaders uh, besides yourselves. Representative Boyden, how was following in Representative Rogers' footsteps? Do you think following another younger representative was helpful to you while campaigning, or do you think it might have worked against you in ways? Um, it was definitely helpful to have the guidance um, of another young woman while campaigning. Um, I'm really grateful to be in this position um, at this time as we've had a lot of other young people sort of just widen the path year after year. Um, so I'm very grateful for them to create a space where it's not typical for a young person to serve and, and to have proven that it is a space where we are welcomed and our perspectives are and celebrated. Yeah, celebrated. That's the word. When, when I ran and when Lucy Rogers ran, we didn't see a lot of ageism in play. If anything, I used the fact that my opponents were retirees in their 70s to differentiate myself. Um, but you kind of had a different experience, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it was a very interesting experience. And I would say I only experienced ageism from a certain subgroup of people in the community. Um, 
what really kept me going, my spirit alive was door knocking and having so many people open the door and feel so energized by my campaign and my presence and what I was bringing to the table. Um, so that really kept me going. Yeah, I mean, but your opponent did place ads in the paper yeah, that, that, that yeah, that basically said that because of your age, you weren't qualified to yeah. represent the district. Yeah, and for me, that was kind of a roller coaster. You know, I went through my own imposter syndrome of entering this world where um, there aren't many of us. So you, you have these thoughts of, oh, like, do I belong here? Um, will I be valued here? Um, eventually got over that, and then, you know, the ads started, and it got heightened. Um, so then proving myself again to the community and just keeping in my track of this was the game plan all along and here's what I'm going to do to so continue to the, prove myself. The attacker didn't think the same with Rogers? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think she really thought through. <laughs> Lucy Rogers is also a young woman who has done remarkable things during her time here at the Stingups. I would say, you know, they they used, she, your opponent used, like, the fact that you didn't own a home against you, that you had just graduated college against you, when we all know it's nearly impossible to own a home at any age, basically, right now, yeah. um, let alone fresh out of college. So and I, I do think that Lucy Rogers had, so her first race, it was against another young person. Mm -hmm. And then her second race was again, again, another young person. So that, that didn't actually have, that wasn't part of the conversation because both options yeah. were younger. And I think if, if anybody had called or brought age into the picture during her first um, campaign season, I think the community would have really looked down on that person that brought it up. Um, because, you know, like you said, there's just two young people in front of them for the house position. So yeah. it really makes sense. But. And, that, that, and that race, the, her first race, got national uh, attention because they were, they played a concert together after yeah. the debate, which was very cute. And, yeah. and coming together from different parties, also just being young, great people. <laughs> Well, it's unfortunate you didn't have quite the camaraderie with your opponent, but um, Senator White and, and Representative Hooper, what were you, what was your experience campaigning? Any? Which, which one I've done? Uh, oh, <laughs> really any, has there been, have you faced any ageism in your? Awesome. Every, every time, uh, the first time was, I experienced plenty of the same kind of thing that Lucy was just describing, but I had the, the, um, the, luxury of being a rival to somebody who's even younger than me and the two of us sort of we certainly validated one another's candidacies because people couldn't decide which young guy they were gonna throw their second vote to right so like everybody said oh patsy french will come in first and then one of you two guys are you're, you guys are vying for second place and only the two of us knew that that was not true because we were talking to everybody and everybody was saying the same thing. But if that, you know, basically not, we would go to doors and people would be like, all right, well, I've already got, you know, I've already chosen my first one. And I'd say, well, okay, if you, if you already decided on either Ben or Patsy, then I should be your second vote. And that helped me catch up to him. He was five months ahead of me in campaigning. And, um, that's because he started in February. I had to graduate from college, so I, I launched my campaign in May. And um, 
I just remember answering that question, do you think you're old enough for the job? And I, I, would, I would basically put the question back to them and say, you tell me, you know, you're going to decide who you're going to vote for. I'm here to ask you to do that, to, to give me one of those votes. And um, people had a hard time deciding which of the two young guys they were going to choose over the other, so they threw us a bone. <laughs> that was based on the assumption, right, that, that Patsy French would come first. Yeah, in my race, uh, my first race for select board, I was 20. And I was running against two relatively well-established um, older men in my community, both at the time in their 60s. And when I ran, being a homeowner was a big thing that people brought up. I was not a homeowner. Um, I was living in my family home. <laughs> so, uh, um, and it's like, okay, great. I that. Yeah, it's like, wait a minute. Uh, I, I paid rent. Uh, and at this, ah, there we go, that's the difference. Um, but what was interesting about that experience was I was definitely treated as more of a, uh, like it was more of a fancy. Like people thought, oh, this is just on a whim. Or like this is just, oh, she's just doing this because she's young and she's got the energy yeah. and she's out there. Like, great, good for you, kid. Yeah, you know? okay. And I was like, I'm doing it. You know, like I'm really putting in the work. And so what actually I think served me, and it sounds like it happened for both of you, is I actually put in the work. Like I actually door knocked. Didn't you have no opponent though? I did my second time. Okay, I scared well. all the competition off. <laughs> but I actually went to doors my first time. I did mailers, and my opponents did none of that. And in part because they were so confident that they would, one of them would come out successful, that they just did it with the effort. So I actually think that's the biggest advantage is, as young people were oftentimes, were looked down as, oh, you don't really have a shot. So they underestimate us, and in underestimating us, we come out on top. So that was my experience. Yeah, I think going off of that, the one thing that I got criticism for, for putting in all the hard work, was that um, people were making the assumption that because I was putting in all the hard work, I wanted to be a career politician. Yes, yes. That's not the case. Which is so, it, it, what makes me angry about that assumption is, well, I personally think the term career politician has no standing in Vermont because you cannot financially make this a career. Great point. You Great don't, point. if I wanted to be a career politician, I would run in a different state that has benefits, all of that. So, in fact, this is an anti-career because I can't do this while working on another career. Mm -hmm. um, it, the two are not in parallel together. So, I, I dislike that term. And I also think it's unfortunate because the people who I see that we're missing the most are actually uh, younger Vermonters who have children. And the people who need to have pay that goes towards a dependent do need a career. <laughs> so you can't keep public service without giving people pay and benefits like a career. Um, doesn't mean that I want to see people just continuing on into obscurity with service, um, but the people who I see staying the longest are not people with children, are not people who are younger. It's traditionally retirees or folks who can't find an alternative candidate mm -hmm. to run after like serving for 20 plus years. Um, so I, I actually, it's a 
it's a hard criticism to go against, yeah. but it doesn't actually fit the reality of um, what the role <laughs> entails. Absolutely. If anybody ever suggested, like, I would be a career politician, I'd be like, hey, that's up to you, man. <laughs> Keep hiring me. <laughs> Have any of you encountered ageism inside these walls in the state house? Every day. Every day. Every single day. What does that look like? How does it show up? For me, it's probably considerably different than it would be for either mm. my colleagues to my left here. But, and that's for a number of fundamental reasons. Um, I guess probably I'd rather be in my shoes than theirs in this in this area, you know, in this category, uh, because for me, my I fit the profile of somebody who benefits from quite a lot of privilege. And um, the type of ageism that I deal with is easy for somebody like me to, to handle. Like it's just kind of not a big deal to me. It doesn't bother me. Um, but I imagine, well, along some, in some cases, fairly gendered lines, uh, you know, I, I, I don't, I can't even speak to the experience of, of these two. Uh, these two. So. <laughs> well said, Jay. Well said. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's a good point, though, because we definitely experience ageism in the way that we do our work. Um, what has surprised me, though, being in the building, is it's not necessarily you are younger, therefore you are less of an equal colleague. It's more of your generation has different values and different expectations of government mm -hmm. that I disagree with. Mm -hmm. And so that is actually, I think, more difficult to deal with because what I'm trying to express to my colleagues who are older is the way that you've done business for a really long time no longer fits the reality that we're living in. You cannot work as a single person and raise a family on one income. You know, there's no one parent staying home situations anymore. Mm -hmm. it does, unless you have a very high income. The nostalgia that I think a lot of our older colleagues have, or like that they harken back to an older Vermont, um, that older Vermont is never coming back. And our attempts to change our state are not saying that we disown that nostalgic, beautiful, former life in Vermont. It's instead trying to respond to the challenges that our generation is facing. So it is a bit of, oh, well, you just don't know yet. And that's difficult. Um, but I wouldn't say it's necessarily people thinking I'm less intelligent because I'm younger. It's just that my values are different and our generation is less, uh, like our, our perspectives are less important. Mm -hmm. I don't want to end on a oh, yeah. on a note that's on a. I want to bring it back to a positive framing, but and that's and you know, Lucy, you talked about it a little bit about the people who's, who've come before you widening the path. But why, in your opinion, is it important for your voice to be at the table? Um, just a differing perspective, a fresh perspective um, to bring to the issues that we discuss all day, every day. While campaigning in the state house in public, um, and it makes this fresh perspective makes us question um, the way that we've always done things, you know. And just because we've always done things one way doesn't mean it's the right way, and that it's still working, or that it's going to work for the future. 
<laughs> Next question is like, really, why? Yeah, why is it like that? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, and just good energy too. Um, like we said earlier, we have so many new members this uh, biennium, and it has brought such amazing energy to the state house. Um, every day, I encounter so many people who are so excited to be here, um, and I think that is very much different than what it's been like in the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an exciting time. It's a very exciting time to be in the legislature. And I think that we're a part of a really important generation of people who are entering public service. Because the reason I think we need to be here is both because we are actually the demographic of people. And that's important to have all demographics represented. But at the same time, the people who are older than us will need to step away from the role eventually. And it's critical for us as a, as a democracy to build up the next generation of people. So if the next generation of people can't serve, you leave this gap where there's no one to fill the shoes when we need those shoes filled. Because unfortunately, everyone needs to retire at some point. Um, and so I, I think that we also need to be building up the next generation of public servants. And that's going to be us, mm -hmm. whatever role we take on, um, or if we get reelected. Yeah, absolutely. True. <laughs> uh, Jay, uh, finally, do you have any words of wisdom? <laughs> I feel like you, I should let, leave wisdom up to you, right? I'm the oldest in the three of us. I'm the longest serving. Do I need to keep going? No. Uh, that probably exhausts the list, no? I think the most important for, thing for young lawmakers, but lawmakers who, are, who, are, um, who have been around longer, to remember is that our job is not to change your mind, it's to understand your opinions. So um, understand that broadly and narrowly. It's broadly and narrowly. <laughs> well, I want to thank all three of you for taking time today. It's late. You, The house was... Caught up. Yeah, you were caught for a while there. I know, uh, Senator White, you and I need to chat about Joe Ranger at some point. Thank you for lending me uh, that book for a future episode. And Representative Hooper, I look forward to having my turn on your radio show, Heat of the House. And the house was kind of chilly tonight, I'll just say. <laughs> all right, well, thank you all and enjoy your evening. Now it's time for our climate stat of the week, 60%. That is the amount of lands in the continental United States that are still in a mostly natural condition or could be restored, making the United States one of the top five countries for retaining lands in our natural state. Human activity has severely altered 75% of land and 66% of the ocean. At the current rate of losses, less than 10% of the earth will be free of substantial human impact by 2050. This destruction of natural habitat has resulted in the rapid loss of the world's species, with millions more on the line and at a risk of going extinct. In the past few decades, animal populations have declined by 60%. In the face of this crisis, scientists have urged us to conserve at least 30% of the planet's lands and waters by 2030, also known as 30 by 30. Protecting and restoring natural areas is the most effective way to slow extinctions and retain resilient ecosystems. 
I want to thank our guests, Senator Becca White, Representative Jay Hooper, Representative Lucy Boyden, and Representative Larry Sackowitz, as well as Lauren Hurl for assisting me. We will be back next Monday for the next episode of Democracy Dispatch. I will be discussing the complicated relationship that Vermonters and the environmental uh, organizations have with Act 250 in a very special Valentine's Day edition of the podcast. Until next time, thank you for listening, and I'll see you then.